Hi, and welcome to Another Berlin. My name is Cody, and I am from the United States. And my name is Katarina. I am from Serbia. We both moved to Berlin a few years ago, and the whole idea for podcasts came from wanting to explore the adopted city we love and the history and culture. We want to better understand what makes this city so unique and inspires so many to want to call it home. So we're going to do some in-depth dives into the ideas and movements that shape the city and its culture in parallel with the mainstream. For our first episode, we wanted to cover the history of the squatting movement in Berlin from the 1960s right up until today. And then one episode turned into a four-part series. <laughs> These four episodes are quite different from each other. And this episode is part one, obviously. And it's the most informal one. Two of us, we got some beers and we sat and in one go we talked a lot about the influential squatting movement of West Berlin. This movement spanned nearly over three decades and began in the 60s. In part two, we listened to the first-hand interview of an active East Berlin squatter in the 90s. And then in part three, we take a look into the everyday life of squatting and how squats are built and grow. We also get to hear the story of what it's like to live today in a community building that was once a former squat. And then finally, in part four, we go to a living squat here in Berlin and listen to the stories of current squatters working to transform the movement in the modern city. So, if you're interested in protest, in radical social living, or how the goal for self-determined living changed the shape and history of one of the coolest cities in the world, stay with us. A quick disclaimer, we are not professional historians, and though we did our very best to present accurate information, history is complicated, and the stories we have are often incomplete. The conclusions we've come to, based on the facts we have, are our own. We hope this history and these stories are as interesting to you as they are to us, and if so, we encourage you to explore and learn more. Our website, another.berlin, has some links and resources to help get you started. All right. So we have a lot to cover. Indeed. <laughs> okay, so when we talk about squatting, squatting is in general an act of occupying a space or a building that the person occupying doesn't have a legal right to use or doesn't have an ownership. Okay. That is illegal, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> by the German law and many other countries, it's classified as trespassing. There are two types of squats. The first one is people squat because they don't have money, because they mm. don't have place to live, and then they occupy something that they don't own. Just shelter, looking for shelter in general and that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, the other type of squatting is political squatting. Political squatting means that people, when they occupy buildings uh, or empty spaces, they do it because they're rethinking the political and sociological structure of the society. 
they're thinking about how housing is treated in the society, how different groups that are part of the society, mainly the ones that are neglected, marginalized, and so on, are treated. And by occupying the space, they're trying to make a space for extra parliamentary way to create their own society. So a lot of political squads are actually places where someone would occupy a building and then make it a shelter for homeless or make it a shelter for refugees or would try to incorporate, for instance, uh, housing for queer people or uh, for disabled people or for women. So a version of this that would hap- had happened a couple of years ago, the Occupy Wall Street movement in New York. And the, this type of squatting is the one that we're going to dive a bit more into. And why is squatting relevant in Berlin? I kind of feel that there is no city where squatting had such an influence. In so many neighborhoods, if squatters had not really been a part of Berlin, these neighborhoods that everyone is, is desperate to save and the culture and the clubs and the kinos and stuff like that, they would all be non-existent. They, they wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be a part of the city that would be worth saving. There were more than 650 entities squatted, which is impressive. It's almost like the size of a village. Yeah, and when we talk about 600 squats uh, or entities squatted, the number is kind of misleading in some many ways because that can be something as small as a single apartment and an apartment building, or it could be the entire building, or it could be a hospital. In some of these structures, there were so many people. There were, you know, 50, 100 people in one building. There were two huge waves that are now famous like as the peak or high points of squatting. One of them was in uh, West Berlin in the, um, let's say, late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And the, one, the second one was uh, in East Berlin after the actual fall of the wall and before the reunification in Berlin. Both waves are very short-lived in the sense that throughout the entirety of the series, we're going to be spanning oh, like 50 years or so yes. uh, of time. But the actual peak intensity, the real parts of the waves, each lasted... In one case, uh, you know, two, three years, and then in the other case, a summer almost. And, and it's, and, and there was a huge lead up to it. You know, years of of stuff going up to it, and then years of sort of transformation and change after. But those those moments were very small and and have such a huge impact on the city. So if we're looking at where the political side of squatting began in Berlin, we have to go back to the 60s. The 60s were a time of a lot of change in a, a lot of different Western countries, but especially countries like America, the UK and France, where we have a bunch of different student revolutions kind of going on at the same time. So 
in America, you had people living in communes, living on farms. In Paris, you had revolutions. Um, in the UK, you had a bunch of different musical movements and people in general checking out of society and trying to back away from this post-war move towards capitalistic stuff. And uh, the same thing was happening in Germany, but specifically in Berlin. West Berlin was at the time British, American, and French. And as these countries were literally occupying the land, this kind of alternative culture or the culture of protest found a way in through the West Berlin. What happened in the West Berlin in the 68, which, which was a bit different from the other countries, is the fact that West Berlin was an island. Yes, it is something I think we should also mention. I mean, I think most most people listening uh, have heard of the Berlin Wall. But in fact, in, the, in 1968, the Berlin Wall was there. The West Berlin had a lot of young people living there. Berlin had a one really interesting law that enabled youngsters from the West Germany to come to Berlin. And by coming to Berlin, they didn't have to have a military service. I mean, yeah, West Berlin was an island. West Berlin was, was the, the Americans, the English, the French. And yeah, so the point was there was no military service in West Berlin. So everybody who just didn't want to make civil or military service just went to Berlin. And as soon as you had in your ID, you're living in Berlin, you nobody touched you and the point was then that the capacity of island west berlin was surrounded by a wall was getting more and more narrow and i knew flats where there were six people living in one room and stuff so it was really overcrowded especially kreuzberg schöneberg that time that attracted people that didn't want to do military service at the beginning. Right, like painters, writers, artists in general, or I don't know, maybe people that just, uh, you know, like so many college-age kids today didn't don't really know what they want to do with their life, but they didn't want to shoot a gun. It ended up creating a lot of political organizations that started from the university that also found like-minded people in the working class. So you had a bunch of people that, that just didn't believe in capitalism or they didn't believe in traditional family structures. And suddenly they were all getting together in Berlin in the late 60s and they were saying, okay, let's do something about this. In terms of squatting, there was a kind of, I, call, I like to call it like the step in between. Commune 1 was the... I would say they were celebrities at the time. That wasn't technically squatting. Yeah, they paid rent. Yeah, yeah, they legally rented. But it was the first step into testing this kind of utopia or this kind of structures in a practical everyday life. Yeah. And so this was sort of, you know, like hippie communes that you would see in, in the U.S. This idea of creating a new structure, uh, everyone living together, a lot of, uh, a lot of nudity. Drugs. Uh, a lot of drugs, but... According to accounts from that time, it, it kind of failed 
uh, women, for instance, they were still caring for, for children. They were still doing the cleaning. Uh, the men were off having fun and living a, a new utopian lifestyle, but things for them hadn't really changed. What led up to the peak or the first wave of squatting had a background in the urban planning or the city planning. At the same time that all this is starting to happen, starting to bubble up with all the youth movements, the mayor of Berlin is pushing through expansive, dramatic urban renewal policy, where the government was basically looking to move beyond and past memories from the war and to become more like other Western uh, cities and countries. So what this urban renewal proposed is to erase the huge blocks and erase the parts of the city and to create new huge apartment blocks, usually with a really, really tall buildings that would segregate the place where people would live, where people would go and shop and people would go to work. It was going to completely just destroy the whole culture of Berlin. There was this uh, kind of famous term that would be called Kreuzberg mix, which would mean on one plot you would have housing, but you would also have a bunch of bars and how people of Kreuzberg got used to living or like distributing their spaces that they would have a lot of functions in one small space. And then all of a sudden, the politicians come to Kreuzberg and say, well, no, there is this urban renewal policy. And you know what? We actually want to tear down everything that we have here. And we want to make this kind of like huge apartment blocks. And a lot of people in the city were not into this. One of the big changes that was uh, proposed for Kreuzberg was um, the NKZ building, which it's the building that's towering over Kati. Oh, this huge building that actually goes over the street. Of- yeah, yeah. It's sort of the where the main corridor kind of coming off of that mm-hmm. area is with like the, the kind of bridge or balcony over the street. And this was to be a huge housing complex. Many residents were either evicted or forced out or relocated to other parts of the city. And a huge housing complex is going to be built, including a highway. And a highway was going to go down what is today still Oranienstrasse. That is insane. <laughs> so, yeah, basically there were a number of squatters. I think they squatted between 7 and 12 or something buildings on that street. And uh, ended up meaning that the street was not turned into a big highway. It was uh, allowed to remain as it was. And that was kind of one of the very early successes of the squatting movement where people had come together in a neighborhood and said, no, we live here. We want to keep this. We want to preserve what we have. And then at what point this kind of critical mass that was gathering in pubs every Sunday realized that they want to make an organization. So they made an organization that was called SO36, which is named after the postal code. They had even their own magazine, Zudos Express, where they would write about the current situation, the ways that people can fight the urban renewal. And it was a crucial influence to the first wave of squatting. Die Welt schaut auf Berlin. Hier 
ein soziales und wirtschaftlich starkes Berlin zu bauen. Eine ökologisch orientierte Metropole. Eine Hauptstadt. One year later, after the formation of SO36 in 1978, The Tunix Conference was held in Berlin, and this was a two-day event. It had a lot of superstars coming to Berlin to hold lectures, including Foucault, and some of the um, lectures were on um, topics such as queer theory, feminism and ecology, alternative medias, or pop collectives. This was sort of the point where the student youth movement was sort of merged with the political activism on a grander scale. And Berlin be, kind of became this focal point. Uh, also, I want to make a quick side note. Um, at the same exact time that this was happening, um, 1978, 79, this is when David Bowie was living in Berlin, recording his Berlin trilogy albums. Parallel to that, the first wave of squatting started with such an occupation where the group of people would just stand in front of this old firework, not firework, uh, firehouse, <laughs> firehouse that was empty that police wanted to demolish and to, to or in order to create a totally different building and people actually resisted with their bodies. Later on, they stopped the evictions. Wozu sind diese Leute noch bereit? Wozu sind sie noch in der Lage? The government run by the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, could not really get anything done in terms of renewal. And so they had pushed a bunch of people out of the neighborhoods where they lived, started construction projects that they could never finish, and then under-delivered, I guess, on the things that they could. And so the, the city in general, but especially neighborhoods like Kreuzberg, were just really kind of messed up. And when the squatters come along, They start taking a bunch of properties and the city sends in police and then the protesters and the squatters say, we're not leaving, and the police would back down. Then that would happen again. The police would start to come in, the protesters and the squatters would get a little bit more aggressive and the police would back down. And that happens over and over and over again to the point where basically the squatters sort of had control of the situation and the government was in a really hard place where they had already given so much that the only real option that they could see to help with housing and to sort of appease the squatters was to start creating a partnership. One of the ways they were trying to do that, they were working to create a, a contract swap. So if a, if a squatter had a building, they could swap that apartment out for a different building that I think the city kind of helped choose. But this whole phase actually was a honeymoon phase. What happened just 
two months later in December of 1980 was a huge clash between a squatters that squatted a house in Frankel Ufa and between the police and they ended up in a almost 48 hours clash that ended up with a lot of people being arrested and a lot of people protest. Yeah, around at least 50 people were pulled out and arrested kind of aggressively. In this particular instance, the cops had kind of decided on their own to disregard the main line of the government and were actually like pretty aggressive to the squatters, even if the squatters themselves were not being aggressive. And it kind of ruined the whole treaty, treaty yeah, yeah, the short-lived treaty. And it was reported in the papers that the squatters had actually squatted one of the apartments that was in the swap deal. And that was simply not true. The, the, the source for the newspaper stories was from the police memo of the police that had arrested the squatters at the other squat. They were trying to get public support like, against squatters. And what ended up happening is it backfired. There were a number of demonstrations that happened and I think it was uh, December 12th. Um, really should have looked up. Uh, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Yeah. 12 December. Okay, yeah. So just a few days after these lies were spread around on December 12th. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> 15th. Okay, so just three days later after the eviction and the slander put forward by the cops in the newspapers, the squatters planned a big protest. The second day of this protest, there was a public disclosure of one of the largest scandals politically of that time in Berlin, which was the Garski Affair. And this was a revelation that about two or three years before, the city had given a contract or a loan for a private developer to produce a in today's money, a 130 million euro project in Saudi Arabia. So not in Germany, not even in Europe. And the developer uh, project, the project stalled and failed. The developer, Garski, stopped paying and then just disappeared, basically leaving the Berlin government and citizens with a 110 million euro deficit for nothing. Like literally just the money's gone. That revelation came out on the second day of the protest by the squatters after this eviction. So you have here a government that has just made up some weird, unnecessary lies about squatters uh, trying to go back on their word and squatting buildings they didn't. You have police that are being way too aggressive. You have a, a housing sh like crisis in general where the city is just kind of in ruins and landlords have let the, the buildings fall into uh, to pieces. And then you have a protest going on and then suddenly you learn the city has lost 110 million euro because of government incompetence. This came out and then the mayor resigned. <laughs> a lot of the cabinet, a lot of the Berlin government resigned. And then a new temporary government came in for about five months. And in those five months, the squatting scene multiplied by like five times. It exploded. By the February of 1981, over 50 apartment blocks were occupied. And the number was rising and rising. In May of 1981, there were around 170 houses that were occupied. 
a lot of people declared themselves as squatters at the time, like more than 2,000 people, which is really a lot. And also a lot of people in Berlin were supportive of this self-determined type of activism that was trying to gain back the power from the institutions and from the government that was falling apart anyway at the time. It's this sort of weird situation where the SPD had generally been supportive and compassionate towards the squatting scene for so many years, but because they had allowed themselves to be pushed over so much by the squatters, the temporary SPD government that came in sort of had no no real power. They couldn't really enact the reforms that they wanted to, and in fact, one of the odd side effects sort of of this period was the creation or the proposal of a policy that today is known very negatively as the Berliner Linie. At the time, this this was called Berliner Linie of Reason, <laughs> which is really extreme. Uh, every time that we speak with squatters or anyone, everyone would say about Berliner Linie as the way to evict people right now, the way that police treats people right now to violently evict them and so on. At the time when it was invented and put up, was supposed to be a way to find a, a common ground for squatters and for the yeah. government. Yeah, I mean, to, today, basically, uh, it's a stand-in for saying that uh, any building or any place that is squatted in Berlin will be evicted within 24 hours, oftentimes within an hour or, or less. It was originally proposed as something to help squatters and to keep buildings from being left empty. A landlord or an owner of a property had to prove that they had immediate plans to renovate or to do construction on the property. And if they could not, then the squatters were allowed to stay. I kind of feel that, that this was their way to re redirect the urban renewal, immediate yeah. urban renewal. To yeah. be like, either it's going to be renewed from the owner that has to do it right here, right now, or if not, squatters are going to do it. Because Kreuzberg was a mess. Like there, there were apartment buildings where they had no windows, where they had no doors, because the landlords had taken them out because they wanted residents to get out of there so they could turn it into this, you know, massive renewal utopia. But that meant that there were a bunch of buildings without plumbing, without windows or doors, without insulation. And so when the squatters had moved in, well, they still liked doors and windows. <laughs> and they wanted to have a sink that had water coming out of it. And so what they had to do is they had to figure out a way to to do that themselves. But we were helping that the houses are not falling or rotting away. Not all of us, but the most. <laughs> How they call themselves is Instand Besetzen, which is actually a really interesting wordplay. Uh, in German, Besetzen means occupy. And Instand Setzen uh, means to repair. So they call the whole movement Instand Besetzen, which means like repair by occupying. They try to 
go into the buildings and to renovate them and try to make them usable again. These guys would go into these houses. Sometimes the windows would be gone. The stairs wouldn't be functioning. The, the, the general state of these buildings would be falling apart. And they would come in and they would be using the knowledge that they had and they would repair the whole buildings, which I kind of find extremely <laughs> impressive. Yeah. And they would spread out this kind of like do-it-yourself type of uh, mindset to everyone saying that, hey, you don't have to wait for anyone to make a house and make a building for you to live. You can do it yourself. My favorite building from that time was called Bauhof, where the squatters would collect cheap old material that people could use to repair their houses. And then you, as someone who wants to squat or repair a house, would go there and you would talk with the squatters. They have done it before. They would give you tips and tricks how you can and cheaply repair. Tools and, as well, right? Like and they tools would, they as would well. have They would have tools and they would train you how to, to use the tools or in like plumbing and stuff. Right? Exactly. And they would have... Even uh, they would have their own uh, papers and magazines that will help you how to discover where oh, the electricity right. is or how to repair the electricity. With how like, to like put little in. drawings of like electrical circuits. It was stuff. just yeah. impressive how people would provide themselves home. It's incredible. Um, I wish that still existed um, today because there's a lot that I don't know how to do. <laughs> What ended up happening sort of as a result of all this was that the CDU, a rival political party, was watching all this happen and pressured for a new election. In May of 1981, there was a new election and lo and behold, the CDU uh, won and they, they took over the government. and unofficially behind the scenes during all this, the judges, and now in many cases, the police chiefs around the city started uh, taking it upon themselves to start punishing the squatters much more severely. So in court, they would come at them with a, a much longer prison sentence term. They started arresting people at squats and treating uh, nonviolent protesters as if they were militant, Molotov cocktail throwing hooligans, you know, and then throwing them in jail for years, they were probably trying to put down like an iron fist and kind of show like, hey, you, you know, kids or whatever, like, this is what's going to happen if you keep doing all this stuff. This whole story culminated in September of 1981 when one squatter even died in the protests and the squatter became a martyr for the whole fight between the squatters and the government and the police. It also gave a perfect opportunity now for the kind of secretly, actually anti-squatter uh, CDU to then go, okay, well, you guys are getting really out of control now and you're doing a lot of violent stuff. So now we're going to actively come down on you hard. And that's when in winter of 1981, the peak of the first wave of squatting really started falling because even though there was still a bunch of, of active squats uh, 
the government started coming down really hard on them and the formation of new squats basically became impossible. Yes, and on the other hand, they were open to legalization. So out of these 170 squats that occurred up to 1981, 100 of them ended up being legalized and 70 of them ended up being evicted. So slowly over 80s, the squatting scene after the speak in the 81 started going down, going down, still keeping the mindset. But I kind of feel that the government, after this few years of struggle around 80, 81, kind of learned how to deal with squatting on one hand and on the other hand accepted that this urban renewal policy was a fail. From the governance side, they weren't pushing that hard to destroy whole, whole Kreuzberg and to create this kind of like new high rises and so on. They drop off this idea, they incorporate it into their politics. The buildings should be renewed if possible. Mm-hmm, exactly. And crafty as they were, the CDU also managed to take the Berliner Linie, which is, again, originally was intended as a olive branch and sort of a peace treaty. And in many ways, sort of a, a pretty practical solution to squatting into speculative uh, landlords. They used this policy that now by this point had been around for a few years, and they just they kept the same name, but they just changed it over time. So as the 80s went on, they started using this policy to kind of say, oh, no, no, we have complete right and authority to come in and just evict you. And... I mean, that's basically what happened is that, like, more squats weren't being formed. The general political atmosphere at the time was just very antagonistic towards squatters in general. And then they started just pressuring more and more any any, uh, chance they got. They just kind of came in and started uh, evicting people. And if they didn't do that, as you were saying, they would kind of trick them another way by saying, oh, here, legalize. Here's a contract, legalize, and then you're no longer a squat. And then that's kind of, it was, it's kind of a brilliant, diabolical way that they sort of just kind of dissolved that, all this, this energy and this movement that had been building. There was still some kind of rebellion energy that was culminating throughout the 80s within the people that were in West Berlin. Another, uh, you know, very significant aspect of all this was that um, unknown to probably almost everyone on both sides of this situation the Berlin Wall fell. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Another Berlin. This was part one of our four-part mini-series on squatting. Please check out the next episode where we follow the evolution of squatting to East Berlin and hear the story of someone who lived through it. Music for this episode was graciously provided by One Man Orchestra and Mark Weiser under the name Armukha from the album 141190 Ein Akustisches Psychogram. The research material and show notes are available on our website another.berlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate wherever you find podcasts and get in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, my name is Cody. And my name is Katarina, and talk soon.